Welcome to the EFC Podcast. Baroness Caroline Cox is a humanitarian, a nurse, a social scientist, and as she says, a Baroness by astonishment. She and her organization are known for bringing aid and change to some of the world's most difficult places, and often places where others fear to tread. She has a special concern for persecuted Christians around the world. The Baroness has received, among many others, the Wilberforce Award, which recognizes an individual who has made a difference in the face of formidable societal problems and injustices. The Baroness visited Ottawa recently and sat down with us to talk about how her faith motivates her work, the risks she takes, and her challenge to all of us. In this interview, you will hear Caroline Cox refer to ARDF, that stands for the Anglican Relief and Development Fund, and also HART, her own organization, Humanitarian Aid and Relief Trust. We hope you enjoy this interview. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Here we go. So Baroness Cox, um, I'm thinking about your travels all over the world, so many desperate situations you've seen. And I know you have a message for us in the West, like what should our role be today in some of the problems and conflicts you're seeing around the world? I think with our small not-for-profit organization, Heart Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, also ARDF Canada, we share the same passion. Uh, motivated on the whole by the pain of what we encounter with people who we meet in so many tragic situations. Um, And the passion is to try to make a difference. In heart, we combine aid with advocacy, so to give a helping hand, and we work through local partners, and I think that is crucial, because local partners are the local people, they represent the local communities, they know their priorities, they can mobilise their own communities, they're incredibly resourceful, and the things that they accomplish uh, with relatively little inspirational, but also it's sustainable, because if it's their achievements, we celebrate their achievements, and so it's theirs, and therefore, as I say, it's a base of sustainability, but also they need a voice, they need advocacy too, to call our governments to account, uh, to try to respond more appropriately to oppressive regimes, and to try and deal with the issues of Uh, persecution. I know you go places where you say that international, some bigger international organizations do not go, and uh, you have said that you cross borders illegally and shamelessly. Tell us more about that. Well, not all our work is crossing borders illegally and shamelessly, but where an oppressive regime is victimizing a minority in its own borders, doesn't give permission for international organizations to reach those victims, then we feel we have an obligation to be with them, to try to be a voice for those whose voices are not heard. And just two examples where we would be deemed by the um, governments to be crossing borders illegally. One is the little Armenian enclave called Nagorno-Karabakh, a little bit of ancient Armenia that Stalin placed inside Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan tried ethnic cleansing the Armenians from there and is still oppressing the people there and threatening another military solution mm-hmm. uh, to the problems of Karabakh. And if you go into Karabakh without permission from Azerbaijan, uh, then you go on that, they call their blacklist. And uh, I call it a roll of honor. Now <laughs> uh, look at the other people on that blacklist, yeah. there's even more of a roll of yeah. honor. Or another example would be in uh, parts of Sudan, mm-hmm where the regime in Khartoum is continuing to attack its own civilians. Uh, Darfur, that's happening big time. Uh, Darfur does tend to hit the headlines. 
uh, what's happening in the Nuba Mountains, in Southern Kurdistan, and Brunei does not hit the headlines until we do cross the border to be with the people there with aid and advocacy. Have you ever been afraid during some of these travels? Oh, constantly. <laughs> so what, how do you fight that? How do you fight the fear and keep going? Well, you have to realize you are afraid. Mm. And then you have to, what I would say, cross the front line of fear. And once you cross that front line of fear and you still go, you meet the most amazing people. And you come back being blessed, receiving more than you can ever give. Mm. I'd like to hear more about that. I know that your faith is a big motivator in your work, and I know that you are working, uh, when we talk about local partners, sometimes it's the local church you're talking about. So tell me about your experience of the church when you travel overseas. Well, most of our partners are Christians, not all, because the biblical mandate is heal the sick and speak to the oppressed, not just the Christian oppressed and the Christian hungry or Christian ill. Our love has to be unconditional for all. So we do work, for example, predominantly with Buddhists in Shan State in Burma or in Blue Nile in Sudan as predominantly Muslims. But most of our partners are Christians because it's Christians who are suffering the most persecution in the world today. And their faith is humbling in the extreme. We say when they worship, they worship with more joy than many a comfortable church in the West. And their faith is limitless. And I'll just give, and they're dignity, I'll give one little example. Um, one of our partners in Nigeria, the Anglican Archbishop of the Diocese of Dross in Plateau State, Archbishop Ben Kwashi and his wonderful wife Gloria, and the militants have tried to kill them several times. And one especially moving example was some years ago now they went to kill Archbishop Ben, he wasn't there, so they took his wife, our beloved friend Gloria, and they did the most horrendous things to her with broken glass and splintered oh. wood. And they trampled on her so much she lost her sight. Oh, it's, it's been dear. restored, the surgery, but I mean, horrendous torture. Mm. Um, of course, Bishop Ben went back immediately, and the email he sent, I would never forget. It began, um, I've now been home for 24 hours. I've had time to sit and think and pray. Then here comes your repressible African spirit. And I've had a laugh. Mm. Because I remember when I was a little boy, my mum used to pray so much that I'd be a Christian. And I know that when churches in you know, places like Nigeria get into trouble, churches in the West pray for us. And it's good for churches in the West to have to pray, so maybe we should get into trouble more often. Wow. But then he turned serious. He said, I've just come from the hospital. My beloved wife, Gloria, was able to sit to receive Holy Communion. We had a wonderful time of prayer and worship together, and we just praised God. We've been found worthy to suffer for his kingdom. Mm. And we pray that all of glory's pain, anguish, and humiliation will be used for his kingdom, his glory, and for the strengthening of his church. Wow. To praise God for that torture, that humiliation. One doesn't have enough words to do justice to one's appreciation of their grace. Yeah, it's almost impossible for us mm. to imagine. Um, tell me, let's talk a little bit more about the persecuted church then and how we can help them, but also how we can learn and receive from them. Well, one of the fundamental principles which I always operate with is to ask local people their priorities. So when we're with the persecuted church in these dire situations, when very often they may have lost their homes, um, in Sudan or Nigeria or Burma or wherever, um, we say, what's your priority? And very often they say, well, we need everything. We need education, we need food, we need health care, but above all, we need prayer. And 
therefore the message that comes across is their priority is for prayer. Okay. Makes me feel humble because I'd be asking for food. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I feel like too, like just prayer. Yes, exactly. But then of course, prayer without deeds is dead. Mm. And we have to remind ourselves that when we pray, we've also got to be praying to God, what do you want us to do? Right. In response to their situation. And then yeah. God will show us what the priorities are. Do you think, uh, I, I guess coming back to fear, because you seem to me to be someone who has maybe said yes to everything God has asked you to do. I can't imagine there's things you've left undone. The list is so long. So how would you encourage, um, you know, say a Canadian Christian who lives a safe life? And how, how do we step out of that fear to really become an advocate for the poor? Well, I can only speak from my personal experience, but I remember once in the days when I was going into the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh at the height of the war there in the early 90s, and, and there were 400 grad missiles a day pounding in on the little capital city, and our helicopters were likely to be shot down. And I remember a Saturday afternoon, I had a fit of what I call my faithless, fearful dread, and I shrank from going. And then I went to church the next morning, and the gospel reading was he who is not prepared to leave husband, wife, brothers, sisters for mm. my sake is not worthy to be my disciple. But he who does will find new brothers and sisters even under persecution. And I just know if I cross that frontier of fear, yeah. then I will meet the most amazing people mm. and come back receiving more than I can ever give. Mm. I mean, I don't have a kind of comfortable faith. I mean, some Christians say, well, you know, I prayed to God that I would turn safety, so I'm not worried. I can't pray that prayer. I have to remember Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. Not my will, but yours be done. Mm-hmm. And so it may be as well that one doesn't come back safely. Yeah. But one still has to go. Yeah. And so you don't feel your safety is guaranteed. Not at all. You're taking a risk. And yeah. And if something, if the worst thing happened and you were killed, you know, in your duty, I imagine you would see that as a a worthy sacrifice to the God you follow. That's what I'm sensing from you. Well, I think it's no more of a sacrifice than our brothers and sisters are paying every day yeah. in huge numbers. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, it's not such a big deal. Yeah. It's terrifying, and I am afraid. Yeah. But one must still, I think, obey that call. And as I say, we've always come back blessed more than we can ever, ever imagine. And receiving more than we never give. Now you have family who presumably loves you and <laughs> are concerned for you at times. Do they ever say, you know, mom, that's enough? Uh, I think they realize that I am who I am. Yeah. And they're yeah. very supportive. Good. Wonderfully supportive. Um, I'm wondering about uh, the word reconciliation, um, which you use a lot, of course, and we're talking about that a lot in Canada right now. Um, what have you learned about reconciliation over the years? The huge importance of reconciliation. I mean, it's a, a biblical concept that we must love mm-hmm. and love our enemies. And it's, again, one of the things that humbles me when I'm with the people who are really suffering from assault from their enemies. And I remember the Archbishop again in the little land of Nagorno-Karabakh, and I was there on the day when his house got a direct hit and he survived. But just very briefly, as a man who literally uh, saved by prayer, because it was the winter, bitterly cold, no electricity, no heat. But when the bombing started at seven in the morning, you get up immediately to pray. 
And this morning he got up in the pitch dark, freezing cold to pray. A minute later, his house got the direct hit. And there was a huge block of concrete on the bed where he would have been lying. So man's life was literally saved by prayer. Went in the afternoon to meet him in the smouldering ruins of his home to give my sympathy. And I said, um, Bishop, and nobody really knows what's happening in Karabakh. Do you have a message for the world? Do you have a message for the church? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, yes, we give thanks to God. He wasn't smouldering ruins of his home. We give thanks to God that after 70 years of Soviet communism, we are free to pray again. We're free to pray. It's true we're having to pray in the basements and cellars because of the bombardment, having to pray in the field of battle, where our soldiers are having to defend our families against those who would kill them. And, but then he went on with a challenge. And he said, but whatever... Well, he said, it's not only those who commit evil who do wrong, but those who know and stand by and do nothing to speak against it or to try to avert it. But then he finished with the message that we have a God of love. Yeah. And whatever demonic forces are unleashed against us, in this war or anywhere else in the world, we must never hate. We must always love. Wow. We must always love. Have you ever struggled with feelings of hatred or disgust toward some of the oppressive regimes you've worked around? Uh, indeed. Um, I was in Syria and I met people who'd suffered at the hands of ISIS, Muslims and Christians and Yazidis. Um, and when you hear the things that happened to them, there's a lovely Muslim lady who'd had to flee and she was in the what was a coastal resort of Latakia and she told me how her husband had been beheaded in front of her mm. and her sons had been killed, her brother, he'd been beheaded. And that raw, raw horror. Yeah. And she said, in a war, of course, uh, people die from shellings on both sides. But on one side, you die from shelling. The other side, you die from shelling and beheadings. And we don't want the beheadings. Mm. And in the town of Malula, which is about 40 miles from Damascus, which had been taken by ISIS, it's now been regained. But I was in a room where uh, ISIS attacked the family in the room and in the house. And they took the three men of the family, including one who was as young as 22, into the room where I was subsequently standing and said, well, you know, either you convert to Islam or we slaughter you. And they refused to convert to Islam. So they were slaughtered there in that very room where I was standing. And when I say I was only 22 years old, humbling mm. and the extreme, um, but makes you realize that the people on the front lines of faith and freedom need all the support we can give. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of Syria, we know um, about the incredible refugee crisis, which is just one refugee crisis happening around the world. I'm wondering with your experience visiting refugee camps and even visiting with those who haven't yet made it to the relative safety of a refugee camp, how can we do better by the world's refugees? Well, I think one of the worrying things is that for many Christian refugees, particularly from Iraq and to some extent from Syria too, um, there is a real problem for Christians because many people who have had to flee their life for their lives are in the registered camps. But for many of the Christians, many of them have been actually attacked by the radical Muslims in those camps, the extremists, and they've had to flee those camps. And so they're living dispersed and scattered. And so they're not even uh, available for registration with the UN. And so they're not even available for refugee status. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be wise, we need to make distinctions, we need to look with a dispassionate justice at the situation and make sure that all who need uh, the help do get it. Okay. You have said, and we'll, uh, we'll wrap up with this, 
Um, I cannot do everything, but I must not do nothing. Can you unpack that a little for us and just leave us with a hard elbow of inspiration to get us moving? Well, I think when one looks around the world, the needs are so legion, and there are so many areas, situations, people who are in dire need. It can be overwhelming. It can be so overwhelming that you don't know where to begin. It can be almost kind of paralyzing. And therefore, maybe you just turn away because you don't know where to begin, so you don't begin, mm. and you turn your back. Well, our little organization, Heart, and also ARDF Canada, we're not big aid organizations or advocacy organizations, we're pretty small. But the motto which we live by in Heart is, okay, I cannot do everything, but I must not do nothing. Mm. And I would say if we all do something, then we can at least share a little bit of the privilege of making some difference for some of the people in some of the toughest situations in our world today. Baroness, thank you so much for giving us uh, your time today, and we wish you Godspeed and blessing and protection for whatever comes next for you. Thank you so much, and much needed and much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.